This is the balanced dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma, managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? For any woman who feels like she's banging her head against a ceiling or wall, trying to get to the next career level or even stay where she is, our guests today will explain how it's not all your fault. Dr. Amy Deal and Dr. Leanne Dubinsky are the authors of the recently released book, Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. Amy Deal, PhD, is an award-winning information technology leader and gender equity researcher who's authored numerous scholarly articles and book chapters. Her writings appeared in the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Ms. Magazine. Glass Walls is her first book. Leanne Dubinsky, also PhD, is Professor of Leadership at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. She's the author of Women in the Mission of the Church, Their Opportunities and Obstacles Throughout Christian History, and also Playing by the Rules, How Women Lead in Evangelical Mission Organizations. She too has written many scholarly articles relating to gender bias and her work's been published in Harvard Business Review and Fast Amy. And we note that you are both doctors, but for the purposes of the conversation, we'll call you by your first names if that's okay. Yes, please. Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Amy and Leanne. Uh, Amy, I just want to comment a little bit of exciting news. You are a new mother and congratulations <laughs> on that. And thank you for taking out time to uh, carve out this uh, segment to talk with us today. You also have a full-time job as the chief information officer at a college mm -hmm. and your second shift, so to speak, has been researching and writing. And now you have a third shift. How's That's that right. going? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's all new to me. Um, so I don't, I'm not the expert on it yet. I'm 11 weeks in <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, and I just started back to work last week. So I'm, I, I'm, it, it's a, it's a, it, I, I won't lie. It's, it's been a little bit of a struggle, but, um, I'm, uh, I'm managing. <laughs> well, you're speaking with three veterans yes. here and Leanne, I'm going to shift to you. You have such an interesting story. You had a life as a missionary where it was expected that you live off one salary. Um, but with essentially two employees, a husband and wife. Tell us about that. I understand it, it fostered your research and took us to where we are today. Yeah, that was part of the starting point. And you know, this, this structure of two people working for one salary is, uh, it's widespread. It's not just missionaries, church leaders, pastors, the president of the United States, if you think about it, they're expected to have a full-time spouse who's contributing to their job. Uh, professors are sometimes expected to operate this way. CEOs. I would say it even Generals. in CEOs, yeah. that's right, the corporate exactly. wife. Right. So this this thing exists in our society, but it doesn't get a whole lot of attention. And it's a, a an interesting initial piece of the balancing act to be doing the work and not be recognized. That's right. You don't get Social Security. You you nope. don't get any uh, pension credit. Nope. And walk. you have several degrees, quite, quite an interesting uh, CV. 
how did you manage all that with having a family and children? Tell us how mm-hmm. that worked. Yeah. So my my bachelor's and my master's were completed uh, before I had kids. I actually finished, graduated with my master's degree about a week before my first child was born. So that was challenging, but not as bad as I think Amy's had it with trying to do the work while you have the newborn because <laughs> that stage is just hard, right? But then my practical doctorate, I did while my kids were in school. And so we would have what I called homework nights around the dining room table where we all just put out our stuff and worked on it. And my youngest would finish first, so she'd get excused to go watch TV or something. And then my older daughter and I would have to keep plugging away at it for a while longer. So that's interesting. Your children, boy, girl, girl, girl. Two what girls. Two girls. girls. Yeah. Did, were you an inspiration for them? How did they receive mommy going back to school for a higher degree while they were doing their homework too? You know, they never complained about it. And one of the greatest compliments that they eventually paid me, and I don't remember who said it first, but they started calling me their feminist mother. <laughs> because, you know, in this two-person career structure, they didn't see all their friends' moms being proactive. And so I think they saw it as a good thing. You've written a book, Playing by the Rules, How Women Lead in Evangelical Mission Organizations. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I looked around my organization and I saw all these fantastic women doing so many good things. And the men who led the organization didn't see them because of this two-person career thing. And I thought, I need to understand what these women are doing. And so I um, branched out beyond my own organization and interviewed a bunch of women, all the ones I could find at the time, which was a whopping total of 12 who were leading at the executive <laughs> level in these kind of organizations to find out how did they learn to lead? How did they get these positions when basically they're invisible on the org chart? You know, what was it like to be a woman leader in that situation? Leanne, which one were you? Were you the extra spouse or were you the primary spouse? I don't know what other the terms oh, I would was, use for it. I was, it's the trailing spouse. I was the, the trailing tra- spouse. Women are virtually always the trailing spouse. Occasionally we see a position and Amy and I have looked at it a little bit in our research where the woman has the, the official role mm-hmm. and the man is the trailing spouse, but the expectations on a man are wildly different if than they are, you know, for a woman. That sounds like a future show, Maura. I'd love to hear more about that. (laughs) And Amy, you've been an expert witness. Are these discrimination cases or something? Yeah, I I was an expert witness for um, a gender discrimination case, and it was uh, and and uh, retaliation actually also. yeah, it was a it was a college a woman that worked at a college, and she actually worked in IT just like I do. Um, and so I, it was interesting working on the case because I could relate to everything that she you know was had, had uh, was describing. And um, she had two. It was a long story. She had two male bosses, um, and um, you know who kind of kept her in her in her place, and um, you know didn't let her do what she needed to do. And then she had a um, and it, um, she eventually you know, um, she was, she lacked support, you know, through, you know, in the college environment, she had a, an African-American, um, subordinate who wasn't doing his, his job. And so what she found was that he was like given all kinds of support to, um, you know, in his, in his role, but she was not given support as the manager. And, um, so to make a long story short, she was fired after she filed a gender discrimination complaint, and then he had filed a racial discrimination complaint. And then she was the one that was, was fired. And so the, that was the case that I, that I helped work on. And it was just fascinating. Like all of the, looking through all the details and, um, the description, all the, all the barriers that I could find, it was like all of them. So for our purpose, 
That's yeah. right. And yeah. what's interesting for our purposes here, Maura, is that as two lawyers, we have a, a PhD who is qualified as an expert in gender discrimination. And that's what we're moving on to. I would want to hear about your book and some of the questions I had in reading it, Maura. Yeah, I'd like to start with the title. You use glass walls instead of the more common term glass ceiling. And there's clearly a distinction, but why don't you? Yeah. So when we, when we were working on the title, you know, and coming up with a title for a book is not an easy proposition. Let me tell you, (laughs) it took us a long time and, and uh, we had kind of a dull title to begin with. And we, we, fortunately we had a publicist who was helpful in helping us brainstorm. But when we were thinking about, you know, what, what we had written about, um, you know, really, we, we talk about the six primary gender barriers, you know, that make up the comprised gender bias. And what we realize is it's not just a glass ceiling. Yeah, that glass ceiling, you know, exists, but it's also actually just walls that surround a woman. So no matter which way she turns, she's running into these invisible these barriers that are there. They're present, but they're invisible. Um, so that's where the title uh, came from. Interesting. And tell us how you met, because it's sort of an origin story, much like Christy and I share. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll start it and I'll, I'll let Leanne finish. Um, so I had worked on a PhD also, um, in, um, and after I finished, um, I I got to, uh, the opportunity to attend a conference uh, in Utah, and Leanne was at that same conference, and our conference was about women um, and um, and leadership, and it was for people who wanted to continue researching on women in leadership, and Leanne and I were put into the same group. Yeah, so our, our working group was trying to understand all understand invisible gender bias or unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And so we're all talking and I'm just kind of watching Amy's body language and I can see she's really engaged and I can see she wants so badly to be contributing to the conversation. And she had studied women executives in higher ed. And so that was sort of parallel to my women executives in mission agencies. And so I really wanted to talk to her to find out and compare notes. So when we um, we got sent to the airport, because our flights, we had to wait for our flights, but we were flying out of the same airport. So we were on the same trip to the airport. So we just sat down, took over a table at the airport and laid it all out. Like, this is what her women experienced. This is what my women experienced. And the more we talked, the more we realized we had the same stuff, even though they were in wildly different fields. Right. And so that's when we kind of looked at each other and said, we're going to research the heck out of this thing. And we're going to become the household names for understanding gender bias because it needs to be done. And we're going to do it. And when was that? That was 24. Yeah, Yeah. 2014, 10 years ago. Well, let's talk about gender bias. How do you define it? Is there a particular narrow definition? Yeah, and I'm going to read you. I'll read you our textbook definition. Uh, So gender bias involves barriers which arise from cultural beliefs about gender, as well as workplace structures, practices, and patterns of interaction that favor men. So it's pervasive, it's often invisible, it's harmful, it demeans, it discourages, and it disadvantages women. Would it be fair to say it's Besides systemic, a system that's set up by men and for men. Yes, we say that in our book. It's, it's um, the workplace um, and our and uh, all of our institutions. In fact, were set up by men for men with men's needs in mind, at mind, and not so much women's. Women were expected to be in the home, taking care of the family, and not in the workplace. So when these institutions were set up and um, created, they were again created for men's needs, which persists. By, by and large, persists in so many organizations still today. You coined a bunch of new terms. Youngism, we, we've heard gendered ageism, <laughs> lookism, and, but the big one is being an equalist. Can you explain what that means? Like being an equalist means, well, 
let me let me step back. Leanne and I that day in the airport, that's that's the day we coined this term, that okay. first day that we were together. And we were talking about the term feminist. And we both identify as feminists. We both believe in equal opportunities for 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 men and women, people of all genders. But we really felt like we needed a more inclusive term term that would um explain our belief to go beyond just the the gender, you know, gender binary and also to branch out into, you know, other identity categories. So the equalist term is this idea that all people, no matter of any socially identifiable category, deserve equal access, treatment, opportunities, et cetera, in, in all realms of society. And so we coined that term and we identify as equalists as well as feminists. I found it. So the the real part of the important piece is that all people are of equal value. Yes. Right. And we as a society, we use these different identity characteristics to marginalize and devalue people. And Amy and I really wanted to fight against that. It's so, kind of similar to Eve Rotsky and Fair Playing saying all time is created equal. That's right. And that a, that a board meeting is just as important as taking your own child to the doctor. Mara loves that one. And it's so I true. Um, but what I really loved in your book is this focus on ageism. And it's not just ageism when we're older. You found that's where this youngism and the phrases that you point to that people might use with mm -hmm. colleagues who are different ages. And you indicate that it's at every age that we can have mm -hmm. this type of uh, discrimination. Leanne, why don't, why don't you tell us some of your findings with that? Yeah, so I think all of us were already pretty familiar with um, gendered ageism targeted towards older workers in the workplace. And more attention has been paid to younger people as well, and especially younger women who get diminished. They aren't believed to hold the role that they have. We have this term called role incredulity, where people don't believe that a young woman actually has the authority or the position. She looks too young or she can't possibly have enough experience. But the piece that surprised us, and we got responses in our data collection on this one from from uh, we surveyed 913 women and so many, many, many of them talked about this problem with what we have now called never being the right age, right? Because even middle-aged women, it was never quite right. They said, I went from being too young to being too old in an instant. I still vividly remember when that happened to me. And I was either in my late thirties or early forties. I don't remember exactly, but I was on a phone call about women in leadership and a younger woman than me said, you older women. And she's looking at me. <laughs> need to get out of the way. You've already had your chance. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm still struggling to figure out how this thing works, right? Well, you should have gone to a bunny fi filter for your face and that might have obviated some of the discrimination. Well, let <laughs> like, me say, you know, simply, you go from too young to too old. There is no sweet spot as a woman for being the right age to do something. Well, you know, it seems like it's a bigger societal issue. I mean, I have heard women in particular say to say about other women or men who are 10 years older, just 10 years. Oh, they're old. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point this out because this is stuck with me. There's somebody who's um, radio show I listen to who does pop culture interviews. And we do try to talk pop culture sometimes talking about the golden bachelor. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of the bachelor series of dating yes. <laughs> and they have, I know this is going to sound far field, but they have a 70 something year old widower and they mm -hmm. found what would be called age appropriate women for mm -hmm. him to vie for his love and affection. And they were mostly in their sixties. Mm -hmm. And I listened to this interviewer person describing them. Well, you know, they're in their sixties. They don't have much going on in their lives. And I was taken aback by that. Wow. And I was horrified when I saw he himself is 58. No, I think he's 72. 
No, no, no. The Bachelor's 72. This yeah. guy oh, on the, the radio is 58 years old. Right. Well, we could show him a thing or well, two. I've, I've read the profiles of those women, and I can tell you that they are very accomplished women. We're going to take a break, and this is The Balanced Dilemma. You're listening to Christy Derrico and Maura Carlin, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We are speaking with the authors of Glass Walls, Dr. Amy Deal and Dr. Leanne Dubinsky. In your book, you identify six barriers to women, the walls, male privilege, disproportionate constraints, insufficient support, devaluation, hostility, and acquiescence. I think I got all six of them. Let's talk about them. Uh, starting with male privilege, which is a lot of what we've already been talking about, but it, there are more specific examples that I think people don't necessarily recognize. The after hours work or the male bonding activities, let's say, or the, what I would, what I call, I hope no one's offended by the Pence problem, being unwilling to dine with, with a woman alone other than his wife. Even the two-person career structure, Leanne, that you talked about before. Can you guys elaborate on that? And I just did it. I referred to you as guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, male privilege is basically the bedrock on which our workplaces are built because most of our organizations were designed by men with men's lifestyles and interests in mind. And so that's just sort of the default fabric in which we all operate. And we take it for granted. We don't even question it. We just assume, oh, that's normal. That's business. Well, it's male normed business. We, we talked a little about that two-person career structure. We had a guest who is a professor who wrote an article and discussed with us, is the husband going to be a problem when you had two people in the same career? Is that where it becomes even more of a problem? There's a funny new show out on Netflix called The Diplomat, where they're actually addressing this. Uh, she's the ambassador and he's the trailing spouse. And yes, social expectations are wildly different when it's the husband who's the trailing spouse. I've seen that show and they do really make light of that. I also saw, uh, went to the premiere for a show called Fair Play, a movie, and it's directed by a young female director, Chloe Domont, and it was quite good, but it details a, a young couple and they're in finance. And having never been in finance, I was really taken aback of uh, with the locker room behavior and what she was expected to engage in to get her job promotion. Mm -hmm. And it, it's inappropriate whether you're a man or a woman to do that, in my opinion. Everyone likes to have a good time, but this was an outrageous time. And um, they really play on it as the movie progresses. And you can see she gets the promotion, her uh, significant other doesn't, and it deteriorates their relationship. Mm -hmm. And it really highlights a lot of what you're talking about here. You know, one of the things that I think isn't maybe, maybe, maybe to me not recognized enough is that women are often put in the top positions when the company or business is already at risk. Why does that happen? Why is it then that business executives are willing to take a chance on a woman? Is it to blame her? Well, I think so that's the glass cliff. And like you said, the glass cliff starts whenever um, a woman is put in a perilous position um, where she will be blamed if she doesn't perform the miraculous um, and and save and save the business or the organization. Um, and we we see that a lot. Um, we see that with the company right now, formerly known as Twitter. Um, there's now a female CEO who has to report to a male, you know, boss that's, you know, well, we won't 
go into more detail about that, but <laughs> but I would say that that person is on a, uh, on a on a glass cliff, and I've actually tweeted about that. Um, it's actually but, the fall gal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So next one is disproportionate constraints. And there were some of the, we've all mostly hear, heard about mansplaining when a man explains things mm -hmm. to you as though you didn't possibly understand them, even if you may be the, the expert. But what is heapeating and appropriating? Yeah, so heapeating is when a man says, or excuse me, when a woman says something in a meeting and it's ignored, and then a man says the same thing and everyone loves it. <laughs> um, and that one, heapeating is generally not conscious, it's not intentional. Um, it's, you know, again, it's this, this behavior that's been kind of built into our, you know, workplaces and the person, you know, is, again, it's not intentional, but appropriating is a little bit more intentional. And that's when a, when a woman suggests an idea and a man takes it, actively takes it, and then uses it as his own, um, his own idea and, you know, gets, gets the credit for it. And the woman, woman, you know, does not. Now, is that so, different than when, when it's a, you're working together and it's not uncommon, say there's a team and there's a leader for the leader to say, well, this, you know, take responsibility and, and take credit for it because the team in a sense mm -hmm. is to make the leader look good. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about something different than that? Where there may be on a little different, footing? but also, yeah, but also if you're the leader, I'm, you know, yes, the leader takes responsibility, but if you're a good leader, like you are sharing that credit and you are giving that credit to the, where it's deserved. And if you, you know, if you're, if one of your you know, team members has proposed an idea, you can evangelize the heck out of that and say, this was Sarah's idea, you know, like as you're talking about it, um, just to highlight, you know, that it's, it, you know, it's, it's more than just the leader, you know, and that's, again, that's the whole, that notion that the leader takes credit for everything. That's kind of one of those standards. It's like invisible that has been set by men. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily need to, need to, um, continue or exist like uh, shared um credit is a, is a is a wonderful thing and it really helps to engage the team and create a better organization did well, you find it, men do that more when the women have the idea than the men have the idea go ahead Leanne. yeah i mean it's really women who talk about this although i was talking to a man recently who told me it had happened to him so it's not that it never happens mm -hmm. to men but women seem particularly susceptible to have this done to them also, you both having uh, your PhDs, that is a very common phenomenon to use the PhD research assistants, but only have the papers signed off by the head honcho from my understanding. So it's important to give credit to everyone involved in the project. Insufficient support. Can you talk to us about what your conclusions were on this point? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start and then Leanne can... Um jump in. So insufficient support involves women's lack of access to social structures and networks that would help them advance. And it includes unsupportive leadership in which leaders ignore women's needs or concerns, trivialize them, or even disbelieve women who report uh, discrimination and uh, or harassment. Um, and so, um, again, what we saw was women after women talking about how they had, you know, lack of access to mentors, lack of access, you know, no sponsors, they had to learn to lead on their own. Um, it was really um, kind of disheartening the the um, the the how women were just kind of left to like learn on their own. Well, I, I just want to jump in here. Some of these sometimes I like to play devil's advocate, right? And we have talked a lot here about it's hard for women sometimes to speak up and say, "Hey, uh, me, me, me! I I did this, and I want to get credit mm -hmm. for it." We've talked about victory laps and mm -hmm. what you need to do to 
you know, acknowledge your mm-hmm. achievements. Mm-hmm. And even in the book, Lean In, uh, she uses phrases that show that women are rewarded for being demure and not mm-hmm. being outspoken and taking credit. So with some of this, is it is there an aspect of women not stepping up, even when it's uncomfortable um, for trying, as far as finding a mentor, maybe a woman needs to reach out to colleagues and try to find the support system for herself. How do you feel about that having an aspect in this? Yeah. So we, in our book, we give, we give solutions on three levels, leaders, allies, and then the women themselves. And so, yes, you're right. There's an aspect where, you know, person needs to be, no matter who you are, need to be proactive and doing what you can do. But we do not put this onus on the women to solve the, the problem across the organization. So to your point about mentors, yes, a woman can be proactive and should be to look for mentors, but even better, the organization can be proactive. The leaders can be proactive and set up a mentoring program where, pe- where people are paired with uh, mentors mentors and given the opportunity to change mentors if that mentor first one doesn't work out you know just we like again we put the onus on the leaders to change the culture um and, but while also providing practical tips for for women who are um encountering uh, gender bias i want to talk about the devaluation which is your number four and one of the things you know we made a big point of calling you doctors mm-hmm. uh, because there's an untitling you remember mm-hmm. Joseph Epstein wrote a an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, basically referring to Dr. Jill Biden as "Hey kiddo" and saying she should drop the honorary title. Mm-hmm. We had another guest, Dr. Christine Whale, and also Whelan, also a PhD, who said she uses it, but it depends on the context. Perhaps not on an airplane when mm-hmm. they're looking for a medical doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I gather you both experienced to some extent. Your your titles being dropped. Yeah. Why is that? And it does. Is that happen more to women than to men? Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. I heard so much in our research about this from women who would say, you know, they call my male colleague Doctor So and So, and I'm Elizabeth or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It happened to physicians, coaches, reverends, professors, you name it. Mm-hmm. Women get their title dropped off. It certainly happened. It's happened to us too. I, I, you know, my previous job, my male boss was a, he was a longtime PhD and I was a new, new sort of newly minted one, but we were both doctors and it was always Dr. Smith and Amy, you know, that wasn't his name, but you know, it was, it was never Dr. Smith and Dr. Deal, you know, when we were introduced. And the other interesting thing was, I'm sorry, Christy, did you want to continue on this? Well, there's an interesting point. Think about your pediatricians or your female Mm -hmm. dentists. I've had several, and they almost intentionally like to be identified as Dr. Amy, you know, Mm -hmm. Dr. Debbie, as if to um, make it more inviting and Mm -hmm. uh, comforting. And they are medical uh, Mm -hmm. professionals who are undoubtedly entitled to call themselves doctors. But why is that? we don't see male dentists or pediatricians routinely referring mm-hmm. themselves to themselves as Dr. Bob or Dr. Jim. Is this something mm-hmm. that these women off want to create a new space where they're more approachable? How do you feel about that? Well, I'll just point out, we also don't refer to them as male doctors and male dentists where people get referred to as female doctors <laughs> and female dentists and female attorneys. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I have a, actually have one of my one of my dentists actually does this um, where she is doctor her first name um, but I always call her doctor and last name just because you know 
I have researched this, but I think that women do this, women um, professionals, women doctors do this because of the socialization and because they, they do want to be more approachable. And unfortunately, they're just having to, you know, kind of fit themselves into, again, this male normed environment um, and, you know, trying to do that in the best way that they, that they, that they can. Leanne, and Leanne, yeah. I imagine in your research, um, having women in the clergy, um, just like having women in other arenas like law enforcement, their presence is needed and welcomed and they fill a space. Have you? Um, oh, that's you know? absolutely correct. You know, women can empathize particularly, although not exclusively, with other women's issues and can be great advice givers, counselors, listeners. Um, but back to this, and for women clergy, it can be the same, this this space where women have to walk a fine line between being competent and being liked. Mm -hmm. And so this, this use of the first name is a, a doctor and the first name is a way to try to sort of manage that fine line and stay right there between, yes, I'm competent, I have the title, and yes, I'm likable because you can use my first name. So Another I want to get back of devaluation, though, is this office housework. <laughs> can you just briefly talk about what that is? So office housework is like things like taking notes in a meeting, cleaning out the office refrigerator, help, even just helping a colleague with a with a project. Um, and what we find is that women are more often expected to do office housework. They're expected to do these tasks and they get backlash if they refuse or if they if they don't do it. And so we have woman after woman tell us, I think like high these like aren't we surveyed leaders, you know, we weren't surveying like the, the people who's maybe this type of work is in their job descriptions. We were serving leaders and woman after woman tell us they were expected to get the coffee or again take the notes and they're like the person leading the, you know, the 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 talk or the the meeting or whatever. Um Dr. Adam Grant has a good quote where he says, you know, a man who um a man who says he can't do office housework or says he can't, you know, do something is perceived as busy, but a woman who's who does it, who says that she can't do it is perceived as selfish. And this has been proven. I, I read something that talked about female podiatrists and they were complaining about a systemic expectation that they do like nail cutting or something that none of them wanted oh. to do. And somehow those appointments were always going to the female podiatrists. Oh. Google it. I did read it. Wow. So let's so move probably on. Probably the biggest devaluation though has to be in salary and income. Mm -hmm. And sure. where does this come from? Is it because they start lower? Is it because they don't get promoted? Is it because they have to take breaks to give birth? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, else. yes. <laughs> and woman after woman told us, you know, they're They'd ask, they'd get up the courage to ask for a raise and they would be told they didn't really need it because they had a husband to support them. There's something in our society that still perceives when women's income is discretionary or optional or not necessary for the family. She doesn't really need it. Yeah. So they start out lower. They don't progress as fast and then they take breaks. And then in the end, they're way behind when it comes time to retire. Moving on, your, your other uh, two tenets are hostility and acquiescence. If you could briefly describe those so then we can talk solutions. Right. So hostility is active resistance to women's presence in the workplace. It can be discrimination. It can be harassment. It's retaliation when she reports something. And the goal is to keep women in their supposed place, which is subordinate to the men in the organization. And acquiescence. I think I've heard a lot of acquiescence today, um, which is something we have to fight against. So if you're asked to go get the coffee or to clean out the refrigerator, just say you're, you don't ha have those skills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I actually have other skills that are things like knowing how to do construction things. And I always pretend I don't know how to do them <laughs> because I don't want to take that on. But there would be certainly other things I could think of that I want to deny knowledge of also. <laughs> um, so what are some of the tips that you give to combat these issues? Well, again, in our book, we we give lots of tips. So each chapter um, ends with tips for, like I said, leaders, allies, and women themselves, and it, for each sub-barrier that we talk about. So the nice thing about the book is it's a nice reference guide, and you can, a person can say, hey, we've got this going on in our organization, or a woman can say, oh, I think I'm experiencing all, you know, these expectations for office housework. What do I do? You can flip to the end of the chapter and see some see some ideas for how they can um navigate and, and mitigate um, those barriers. Uh, and, and then we have a whole chapter, chapter seven is for leaders, um, really get, get leaders and how they can change the organizational culture in a really systematic step-by-step approach um, to changing the culture and making it very um, uh, gender equitable and gender and, and inclusive. So let me ask you this a little bit of my devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. You're kind of, if it's a system set up by men for men, you're really asking men to step in to help change the system. And so you're nodding. So I gather that's the case. How do you get them to buy in? And the flip side of that is, how do you feel about it turning into kind of a male savior scenario? So you can, one way to get men to buy in is to just show them the bottom line. So much research shows that corporations with diverse leadership teams perform better on practically every level. And there's study after study showing that. So you can just appeal to that. Many men, though, we think and we find really actually want to do better. They just don't know how. So if you can just give concrete examples of these are the issues and these are the fixes, then they're perfectly willing to do it. They just need it to not feel like they're trying to get hold of jello. They need concrete steps. And so we offer those. Work from home. How has this uh, influenced your data? Well, it was interesting because we started our we started this book before COVID, and um, it was this book was a six year journey. Um, and we ended the book. We ended writing the you know the the, the book um, after COVID, and so some of our data was collected before, some was after. But what we found was that you know again the remote work thing was actually a, like a benefit you know to to women. Um, Unfortunately, we still have these expectations around women doing the majority of the housework and that and childcare, and that completely needs to change. Um, but we find that you know remote work for everybody, not you know just not just women, it really enables better work-life balance. You you eliminate that commute, you know, and you know the average commute is like I don't know, like an hour or something a day, maybe an hour and a half. Um, uh, uh, for people. And, you know, you eliminate that and all of a sudden people have time, you know, for, again, more time with their families, more time to take care of the house, more time to, for personal pursuits. Um, so we found that remote work is re- really a winning strategy um, uh, for women. And I'm a remote work like advocate um, for, for any job that can, that can uh, support it. Um, but then back in the, back in the office or in the office, in any organization, you have to make sure the managers, the leaders must make sure that whether the person's in the office, working at home, wherever they are, that they are all um, equally being equally engaged, and um, you know, so that somebody who's like working at home is not out of sight and out of mind, um, and uh, just make sure that you know, they've got equal opportunities. Uh, no right, that's one of the from. downsides. So mm-hmm. I have a question that I'd like to ask both of you. Something we ask all of our guests, and I'll start with you, Leanne. Can you have it all, <laughs> and all at the same time? What's your opinion on that? <laughs> 
You know, I think our society tells that we can, and I think our reality, we know it's really not possible. You always are going to have to make choices. Mm -hmm. That's part of the strategy of being adult is to pick and choose and say, at this time in my life, I'm going to focus more on this and I'm going to let some things over here slide. Right. And it, it, it may be things that we were socialized into thinking we need to do, like have a perfect house or cook a homemade dinner. Maybe you can let some of those things go. Maybe they really aren't as important as we were told growing up or has been socialized into us. True. And Amy, what do you think? Can you have it all? <laughs> I'm learning this lesson as we speak. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what what I'm finding again, you talked about like, that first job, the second job, you know, this, doing this research, and and now I have a, a baby, and you know, of course, a, you know, a family, and I buy my own personal pursuits, and I want to do it all. <laughs> and what I'm finding is I I literally cannot. But what I what I've been finding so far, again, just 11 weeks in, so don't call me an expert on any of this, but um, but 11 weeks in, I'm finding that if I can put boundaries around each of those each of those categories, boundaries around my primary job, boundaries around my like this work has been my passion, the gen the work on gender bias, but I have to put boundaries around it and say, uh, for right now, I'm saying I'm not doing this work in the evenings so I can be with my baby, but I can still do this work, you know, during like you know the daytime hours, but while my my baby is you know with uh, grandma. <laughs> um, or my or my husband, um, and so I can still do do some of it, but I can't do as much. You know, maybe it's a, for me it's a quantity um, kind of thing. I'm right. still you know trying to do everything I was doing, but in um, in uh, lesser quantity. So, so I would, if people take one thing away from this conversation with you today, what would you want it to be? It would be that this problem of gender bias is completely solvable. Um, it seems like a big nebulous thing, and it is. I'm not saying it's a it's a hard it's a, definitely a hard problem, but it is solvable. And our book gives solutions for how to go about and do that. Again, at the leader or ally or the individual woman level it takes all of us working together. No one person can fix the problem, and no woman should feel that it's on her to fix the problem in her entire organization or or anything like that. But it is completely solvable, and I think that's the takeaway. Leanne, you're nodding. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. This is our biggest takeaway that we want to make is the best thing to do, mm -hmm. whatever level you're at, is do something because that's how we're going to fix it. Everybody needs to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it this sounds has been like a wonderful discussion. And I'd like to tell everyone where they can find us. We're at thebalancedilemma.com where you can listen to old episodes and sign up for our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and other reading. Follow us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are also available for listening on Apple iTunes and Spotify. And ladies, where can our listeners find your book to purchase? Yeah. So on my website, I've got all the links. It's amy-deal, that's D-I-E-H-L.com. I've got all the order links. Of course, it's a, it's a, basically you can find it at any online online reseller, Amazon and, you know, bookshop and all the rest. Um, but if you want the if you want the specific links, you can go to my website. The book is Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. Thank you, Dr. Amy Deal and Dr. Leanne Dubinsky. And thank you for listening. This is The Balanced Dilemma. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico.